and you open it to everyone in the room. And you gently send and receive loving kindness. Or ease or peace. So this is very important. It seems ridiculously simple in a way, but uh, we've discovered it's not so simple. And it's not so simple to maintain it. All religions recognize the value of love. So those of you who were raised in the Christian religion know one of the most famous verses in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I can boast about it, but I do not have love, I have gained nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as if in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So there's so much in this portion of scripture. When completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Now we see only a reflection in a mirror. So these both refer to uh, what we're working with as human beings. It's inevitably incomplete. 
but it is the gateway to what is complete. We see only a reflection in a mirror, a reflection of the kind of sustained, boundless loving kindness that we are capable of, that we are immersed in, that is always present. Through this practice, we can see it face to face, not just a reflection. Or actually, we can feel it heart to heart. We desperately want to see love reflected back towards us from other people or specific people. But we know love only in part. Through practice, we will experience it more and more fully. The line, even as I am fully known, can it be that the entire world knows and loves us? What would that be like if you experienced that, the entire world knowing and loving you? Would that change you? Is that perhaps what the hugging guru experiences? Ma, the hugging guru, who can hug up to 3,000 people in one day and doesn't seem to run out? I don't know. I don't think I could do that. I suggest that now in this time of session that you begin to look for love. Where do you find it? Not theoretically. Investigate. Where is it? Here? Is it here? Is it here? There? Open your heart and see if anything comes back. We've been so busy sending love out or gently receiving it. But open your heart and see if anything comes back from where. Don't let the mind in, uh, come in with a pat answer. The mind loves to do that. The mind loves to take a question and go, oh, I know, I know what the answer is. So that kind of answer doesn't satisfy us at all. It's, it's, it's an experience that satisfies us. So keep putting the mind aside and saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to continue to investigate this. You heard that romantic love is the near enemy of loving kindness. There's nothing wrong with romantic love, but it is only a small part of the many aspects of love, as those who have been partnered for a long time inevitably discover. <laughs> Actually, when I'm advising people about becoming couples, I say the most important thing is to start with friendship. So friendliness. Start with friend friendship. Because the romance comes and goes, the sex comes and goes, the sparkle comes and goes, and friendship is what will last. Loving kindness, that kind of friendliness, that kind of open-heartedness is what will last. Romantic love often fools us into thinking, oh yeah, I know what love is. Love is that fluttery feeling in your heart and 
who just think the person is perfect and they think you're perfect and it's going to last forever. The ancient Greeks recognized seven different kinds of love. Very interesting. Hmm? The first <coughs> one was um, essentially erotic love, romantic love. It's called eros, and in fact, the word erotic comes from that. The Greeks thought that it was the most dangerous because it could get them into the most trouble. Then next is philia, known as brotherly love. So the city of Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love, named so by the Quakers. It's a, oh, we also call it platonic love, loving someone as you would love a brother or a sister, if you do love your brother or sister, or a really good friend. And the Greeks considered it more valuable and cherished it more than eros. The next was ludus, playful love. It's a kind of childlike and having fun, the, the heart-opening aspect of having fun together. And next was pragma, and the word pragmatic comes from it, which is long-standing love. So like the love that develops between um, people who've toge been together, whether they're partners or long, long friends, over many, many years and many, many trials, many, many ups and downs. It's um, based on commitment. And it's based on understanding each other as different people, on compromise. It's based on tolerance. <laughs> Once you're talking about love and long-term love in a relationship workshop. And, and Hogan said, I think it's based on forbearance. I said, forbearance? <laughs> <laughs> Tolerance, maybe. <laughs> Tolerance is a better word. <laughs> so it's called standing in love rather than falling in love. Standing in love, which is a very nice way to explain it. Just standing firmly, rooted in love. Because it grows over time, like a tree, it becomes rooted. And it requires a depth of understanding that develops over many years. Many years. Sometimes Hogan will say something uh, about something that happened in his life. And we've been together for over 35 years. He'll say something about ha something in his life, and I go, whoa, I never heard that story. Or I, did, I didn't know you felt that way about something or perceived something. That's very interesting to find out how people perceive things very differently than we do. And that takes years to grow that kind of depth. And then agape. Agape is a kind of selfless love, uh, a love for all of humanity, which is part of what we're cultivating. It has no expectations of anything coming back. Um, it endures even when 
anger comes back. Um, it has so it's unconditional. It has no conditions, and it can connect us to people that we don't even know, like Syrian refugees. Like compassion connects us to Syrian refugees. We we don't actually even know that they're there. We've read news accounts and maybe seen pictures, but that's that's enough for us to open our hearts to them and to want to do something about their suffering. And then there's philautia. And the, the, there are two kinds of philautia, according to the Greeks. This is love of the self. So there's one that is selfish and seeks pleasure, fame, and wealth, can become narcissistic. So that's the one the inner critic is afraid of, right? That loving kindness, if we direct it towards ourselves, might turn into of narcissism but there's another another love of the self which is very healthy and essential for contentment and ease I think to truly love ourselves to enjoy being with ourselves which ends loneliness the suffering of loneliness to enjoy being with ourselves and equally enjoying being with other people to be friends, to be good friends to ourselves, with ourselves. And really, it's only when we feel very comfortable and really enjoy and love ourselves that we can truly love other people. And then, I think this is pronounced storge. It's the parent's love of the child. It's a protective love. And, and the description is one we can cultivate through recognizing the suffering we went through in childhood when people did not understand us. So we've been practicing that too, right? It's a love that knows forgiveness and acceptance and sacrifice. It's a love that makes you feel secure and comfortable. So all of the parts of us as we develop are incorporated into this self. So the infant, the toddler, the young child going off to school, the teenager, and so on, they're all part of us. They all live within us and can provide a lot of variety in our lives. But they've all experienced some kinds of suffering. And we, through awareness, can recognize that and can also care for it, as we've been doing. And when we do that, then we begin to feel very comfortable and, and secure, that young part inside. So, for example, when I uh, used to have to testify in court and I knew that I was going to get attacked, because that's the job of the defense attorney, but it's very unpleasant to walk into a room knowing they're going to try to tear you apart uh, or shame you or dishonor you or catch you in something, inconsistency. So um, I would go, go into the courtroom, but first I would say to the child, I will protect you. I know this is not pleasant for you uh, to have somebody attacking us, but you just get behind me here and I will protect you. 
and I have a whole quiver full of arrows. And you know, if this person gets really nasty, I will practice forbearance until, and actually it was until I could sense that the judge and the jury were getting exasperated with the person who was attacking me. And then I would shoot one little tiny arrow back and then see what happened. If that didn't work, I had more ammunition. But it has to be used very, very, very delicately. Um, but the point was, I knew the child felt very distressed that we were going in once again to be torn to pieces and discredited. Um, but it was very important because it was important for the child who had been abused. And so my child recognized that and was able to go in protected. And feeling compassion for the other child who had been abused, then that gave my child courage. And I used to tell children in when I saw them at the Child Abuse Center, courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. That's actually ridiculous to never be afraid. Courage means that you're afraid, but you do it anyway. You do, you do what has to be done anyway. And I saw a lot of courageous children testify, a lot. So that gave my child courage. So th this is very interesting, this last uh, Greek recognition of parents' love of a child, which is, all of these are parts of us, hmm? aspects of love as we explore love. Uh, the, the Buddhists describe um, the four immeasurables in this way that uh, when, before a child is born, the parents feel love for that child, even though they've never seen it. They have no idea what it looks like or what its personality is going to be or what their life will be like for the rest of their lives with that child. But they nonetheless, un unseen, they love it. They feel affection towards it. They want to care for it. So that's loving kindness. Loving-kindness is a basic attitude of openness, friendly, friendliness, and, and willingness to support someone, even though we've never seen them, never met them. So we go forth with that general attitude. Then, after the child is born, when the child cries because something is irritating it, it has a diaper rash, it's hungry, it's uncomfortable, then we feel compassion for the child. We see it suffering and we feel compassion. Then when the child becomes about a year old and learns to walk, if you've ever watched a child take its first steps, they are so proud of themselves. <laughs> They're so pleased with themselves. But the, and everybody else is too. Everybody's cheering them on. So that's sympathetic joy to recognize the joy that a child feels when it accomplishes something and it resonates in us. Hmm? We don't feel jealous. Oh, you can walk. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I can walk too. <laughs> Just let me show you. How I can walk better than you. No. <laughs> No, there's a, just a natural joy. Oh, look at what you've accomplished. Isn't that great? And then 
uh, when the child is grown and goes out into the world, or even when they go to um, school for the first time and you can't be there with them, but even more so when they become an adult and leave, leave home and venture out into the world, the parent has to have a kind of equanimity, a balanced view that, yes, I'm worried about them, but I have faith in them. So that's equanimity. I believe they will do well. I really, that's, that's my fundamental feeling of equanimity. They will do right. They'll be all right. So think about how the inner critic is the opposite. Mm-hmm. In reference to the unborn child, the inner critic dislikes or even fears your fundamental innocence and maybe your unborn nature. In terms of compassion, the inner critic sneers or says you deserve it when you suffer because you were an idiot. Right? And if you look at sympathetic joy, far from rejoicing over your accomplishments, the inner critic just knocks them aside or judges whatever you've accomplished negatively, compares you to someone else, something else. Never good enough for the inner critic. And equanimity? The inner, the inner critic has none. None. It's always worried. It's always frantically worried. The inner critic is the opposite of equanimity. It can always disturb, disturb you if you've developed a sense of security and balance. It can always knock you off balance with a snide remark or a cutting remark. Isn't that interesting? Among all the ways to access loving kindness that has been, have been presented to you over the last few days, I hope that you have found one or two that work for you. So we've done loving hands, feeling the loving hands touching each other or touching the body, loving feet during kinhin, during walking, beginning with someone or something that's easy to love, as a catalyst to help us grow the field of loving kindness, the categories we can spread that field out into, and the categories of relationship, friends, family, and so on, to near enemies and far enemies. We didn't get to that, but that's the next extension. The categories of geography, categories of different kinds of distress, mental and physical. We looked at recalling a time in childhood and then giving that young child our vulnerable parts, what it did not receive when it had difficulties earlier on. So it's very interesting when you practice, for example, loving feet in Kinhin. What's the difference when you Bring your attention to your feet, which we recommend all the time in Kenyan. Pay attention to the bottoms of your feet as a focus, as a concentration focus. Well, what, what happens when you add loving kindness to that? 
How does it change it? Very interesting. Hmm? A number of people have discovered that the inner critic does not like loving kindness. Well, that's very interesting. Why is it so afraid of loving kindness that it throws up barriers to it? Or it sneers at loving kindness. Oh, it's so namby-pamby. It is not real tough Zen training. Or it calls you selfish for directing loving kindness towards yourself. Or it says, you're just faking it. You don't really feel love. You never have. In fact, I think you're incapable of real love. Why don't you just quit this charade and go back to your breath? At least you can count to ten. Well, sometimes. <laughs> right? Can you just feel it sucking the happiness out of your life? Or even amusing, more amusing to me, don't do loving kindness for yourself. You don't deserve loving kindness. This is amusing because it appears that the inner critic truly believes that you're the only human actually the only living being in the entire world who does not deserve loving kindness. Wow. Talk about a bizarre belief. Are you that important? In reverse? Hmm? How could that be? That you, you're, Are you so evil? Are you the most exalted evilness? <laughs> that you don't deserve loving kindness? So we have to really look at what the inner critic is saying. Hmm? Look beneath it. What are, what are its beliefs? Hmm? Its fixed beliefs. And when you realize that underneath anger, and again, always test this out, is always fear, and that the inner critic is always angry, you begin to be intrigued by the question, what is the inner critic afraid of? Be curious. Anytime you hear it, you can ask, hey, hey, inner critic, what are you afraid of that will happen if we practice loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity for a week? Why are you objecting? Are you afraid that it will affect you? Are you afraid that people will take advantage of us? Are you afraid that we'll become so open-hearted that the sad things in the world will have double impact? Are you afraid that it will make you so happy that you won't be motivated to do anything important? You won't be successful in the world? Somebody mentioned this yesterday, that the inner critic's afraid that if we do loving-kindness, it will make us complacent or make them complacent. That's cute. I love the inner critic's words, complacent. It's so interesting that we humans think that anger will solve problems rather than loving kindness. You know, there's that old parable of the man who's walking along and he's got his cloak wrapped around him and, you know, the old the sun and the wind have this bet on about who can get him to open his cloak up. Of course, the sun, the warmth, wins. The Buddha was very clear about this. He said, anger always begets anger. Anger adds to the anger in the world when it's acted out. 
in the Dhammapada, the famous quote is, hatred does not cease through hatred at any time. Hatred ceases through love. This is an unalterable law. So dharma means law, basic fundamental law. So this is a law of the universe. Hatred, anger, begets hatred, anger, and is only antidoted by love. Angry and reactive thoughts arise in our minds, of course, and judgments, which are also based in aversion. So anger is aversion. Judgments are also based in aversion. Oh, they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't be that way. You can sense the aversion, right, the push away. And that's why we frame the 11th precept as do not give vent to anger, but seek its source, or seek and dissolve its source. So angry thoughts, aversive thoughts, judgmental thoughts will arise less and less as we practice because we recognize them very early. We can feel the, the push away. Or we recognize them and, and laugh. I have this, it's really, I don't know where it comes from. It's really stupid thought. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's not the inner critic saying stupid. That's true. <laughs> so if I can't find something, immediately I think somebody took it. Maybe because I had sisters who did take my things all the time. <laughs> I would go to my closet to put on some clothes for school and discover my sister was already wearing them. My clothes. So anyway, I have this thought. Somebody took it. And I can now just laugh at the thought because it is never true. Maybe 99.9% .9 of the time it isn't true. And if somebody did take it, it was a mistake that they took it. They didn't take it on purpose. So we have to really look at our thoughts. Because that thought, if, I, if it persists, if I feed it, who took it, I'm going to find it, then anger, anger develops. So I can now catch that thought very, very quickly. Because it has never turned out to be true, except in my closet when I was 12 or 14. San Francisco Zen Center, they translate this precept as do not harbor ill will. Do not harbor ill will. Harbor is a very interesting word. It, it has that feeling of holding it close to your chest and kind of enjoying it, harboring ill will. One person told me years ago when we were working with the precepts, he said, uh, I realized that anger is delicious. And anger has a kind of energizing quality to it. So we have to recognize that anger can sometimes have this delicious feel to it. I feel so right. I feel so righteous. So in studying anger, you what you first need to look at is anger beneficial ever. Is anger beneficial ever? So there's a whole study of anger. But anger, kind of the conclusion, <laughs> to fast forward to the conclusion, anger is a messenger. 
Anger is a messenger. Something needs attention. But it is a very bad way to try to solve it because it begets more anger. So how to work with anger? Sometimes doing loving kindness will dissolve it. Sometimes getting more rest will dissolve it. Sometimes looking at the fear that lies at its source and really examining it carefully, is this really true, will dissolve it. Sometimes clarifying the thoughts that we keep running in our mind, the movies that we run in our mind that feed anger, and the beliefs that keep the anger charged and realizing that they're not true, that they're a story, it's not true anymore. It's not true right here, right now. Sometimes channeling that anger into becoming educated. So I often find if I become educated about something, I realize the the anger dissolves because I realize, wow, this is really complex. Really complex. Not so simple. So sometimes channeling the anger into becoming educated about the issue uh, and stepping forward to actually do something positive about it. Actually taking that energy of anger and channeling it into determination to, to make a change. Lots of times people will come to me, oh, they're so upset about discrimination or they're so upset about um, you know, crooked politics or they're so... So I, j- I just say, well, great figure out something to do about it. And it just amazes me how people will maintain indignation and not do anything about it. So find a place to do something about it rather than harboring, relishing anger. So our our practice, of course, includes all of these different ways of working with anger and more. So this is a very important teaching of the Buddha about how to deal with afflictive emotions. And there's a chant, which you all have. So let's try chanting this together. As you know, the little dot above means raise the tone, and the dots below mean to go down, and everything else is in between. Sutra on the cultivation of thought. Before I was enlightened, it occurred to me. Suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. I will set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty, and thoughts of envy. I will set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving kindness, thoughts of compassion, and thoughts of sympathetic joy. What thoughts lead to my affliction, my obstruction, obstruction of others, obstruction of wisdom, cause difficulties, and lead away from nirvana. Know that whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders on, 
that will become the inclination of their mind if they frequently think and ponder on thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty, and thoughts of envy, then they have abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate a heart of sensual desire, a heart of ill will, a heart of cruelty, and a heart of envy. If they frequently think and ponder on thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving kindness, thoughts of compassion, and thoughts of sympathetic joy, then they have embraced the thought of renunciation to cultivate a heart of loving kindness, a heart of compassion, a heart of sympathetic joy. Then they dwell serene in equanimity, at home in the divine abidings. So Buddhist practice is often referred to as mind training and heart training because in the West we divide those two. So this is the Buddha speaking of how he trained his heart mind. He looked uh, in his very sensible way at what kinds of thoughts led away from awakening, led away from enlightenment and led to difficulty. And he said, okay, I'm going to put those over there in one category. And then I'm going to look at the kinds of thoughts, of attitudes of heart, thoughts in the mind, that lead to benefit, benefit myself and others, and eventually lead to a life, an awakened life, that are part of an enlightened, awakened life. And these I will uh, discern as soon as they arise and step away from them and these I will cultivate in their stead. Very straightforward. It's a description of practice. To realize when the mind or heart is starting down pathways that lead away from the good and toward the difficult and to change course. Someone asked an important question in one of the groups. They said, well, we talk about Buddhism is not a self-improvement project, right? We say it's not a self-improvement project. But then we are sitting here spending days trying to cook up loving kindness. So this is a really good example of the tension of opposites that characterizes Zen and maybe characterizes the deepest truth the largest truth. So we talk about relative and absolute, or we talk about spacious emptiness, spacious, luminous, vast emptiness, and the liveliness that's constantly arising in it, within it. So those seem like opposites, right? Boundless love, 
that maybe we begin to recognize and the need to cultivate it in ourselves. In the largest truths, there's no tension between these things that we think are opposites. There's no tension. It's only in our small mind that there seems to be a tension. There are only differences, interesting and lovely differences. The problem, as it often is, is in the words. So it might be better to say that Buddhism is a self-discovery project undertaking or a true self-excavation project. Loving-kindness is innate to you. You've heard that said many times, even in this week. It already exists within you. Proof. Good to ask for proof. It spoke from within you and said, let's go to a loving-kindness session that brought you here. Proof, there is something that you love and feel simple affection for. It already exists. There's something that makes you smile or feel warmly when you see or hold it. This is inherent loving kindness shining forth and calling to you. Let's develop more of this. I think you'll like it. I think your life will go better. Proof, you feel badly when you allow the opposite of loving-kindness, aversion, etc., from the chant, to take over your heart-mind. You know that this is not aligned with your original nature. You have a deep knowing of that. It's not aligned with living the upright or noble life, a life without regrets. The Buddha doesn't talk about sin. He talks about skill in living. What works in life? What creates more suffering or less? What leads towards happiness and what leads away? It's very straightforward. It's very practical. It's based upon universal law, which is one of the meanings of dharma. Universal law, it's like gravity. We don't fight gravity. It's become so much part of our life. So it will become with loving kindness if we bring it out of the place within us that fear has hidden it. And we try it out and see, is this a better strategy in life? So we could say that Buddhist practice is a self-destroying project. Self with a small s. It is self that we have cobbled together and especially cobbled pieces onto it and put armor on when we've been inevitably wounded and jostled and kicked around by life. So we could say that Buddhist practice is learning to dare to let go of that armor piece by piece and to let go of the harmful ways and strategies that we've adopted to protect ourselves. As we realize that maybe we don't need protection when we rest, 
in original nature. And that armor we discover is very isolating. It's actually hurtful, hurting us and suffocating us. And the harmful ways are hurting us and those we care about. We could also say that Buddhism is a self-discovery project with a capital S. Often when a piece of armor falls away, there's a great sense of relief. We're so afraid of it happening, and then when it happens, it's just like this burden that we drag around all the time is lifted. Often when true wisdom erupts through a clear heart mind, there's a sense of, oh, of course, I've always known this. How, how could I have forgotten it? You've always been kind and loving, but you got confused and off track. We all have. We all get confused and off track. Practice reclaims that which we already have. So in Zen, we talk about washing the clay off of a statue and discovering, oh, there's a golden Buddha inside. It's a fair amount of clay to wash off to discover that. But it's there. So the Buddha said, we will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind and heart by loving kindness, making it our vehicle, making it our basis, stabilizing it. So this is a very important aspect of practice. The, the Tibetans talk about this a lot. Cultivating a practice, developing a practice, and then stabilizing it so that it's reliably there and stable and it's our it's our vehicle we're we're carried around by it we carry it around and then eventually it carries us around we exercise ourselves in it back to the buddha we exercise ourselves in it so like we exercise open heart closed heart open heart closed heart and we fully perfect it we will develop and cultivate the liberation of heart-mind by loving-kindness, make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Could it be that we are swimming in a sea of wisdom and loving-kindness? No bird or fish can ever leave it, no matter how far it flies or swims. Is it flowing in our veins? Look. Keep looking. Now you can feel it in yourself. Where else do you perceive it? Look. 